Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but, the, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Ellie, thank you. Good morning, and uh, welcome to Leewood Campus of uh, Christ Community. I'm Tom Nelson. Uh, I have the great joy of serving on the teaching team uh, at Christ Community, and uh, love having you here. And a special congratulations to our high school seniors and families. You've done good, and uh, you all looked real good up there. So thank you so much for that. Well, in one of the most famous debates uh, ever at Oxford University, Jonathan Glover, who was an atheistic philosophy professor there, uh, took on Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager, as he built his debate, uh, came to this final conclusion asking Professor Glover this question. He said, if you, Professor Glover, were stranded in a late night hour in Los Angeles, a difficult area of the town in a darkened street, and your car broke down, and you left your car with a sort of sense of fear and trepidation, and you were suddenly to hear the weight of pounding footsteps behind you, and you saw 10 burly guys who had just stepped out into the street coming toward you. Would it make any difference at all if you knew they had just come from a Bible study? <laughs> Quite a question, huh? How would you answer it? See, whether you are here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian or you're not a Christian yet, my hunch is you would probably say, yes, it would make a big difference. But why is that? Because in our heart of hearts, regardless of where we are in our faith journey, we have this sense that what we believe and how we live should be connected. In our hearts of hearts, we know that the Christian faith and virtuous living ought to go together. That followers of Jesus are to be virtuous people, and a local church is to be a virtuous community. This morning we are continuing a series we began last week entitled Vices and Virtues, or if you're real optimistic, Virtues and Vices. The word virtue is not a word that we use a great deal today, which is deeply tragic, but it is an important word for all of us to recover. 
For this idea of virtue has been embedded in the human experience and has the deepest, richest, longest history imaginable. Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, good old Aristotle and Plato, heralded four virtues that were part of the good life. Prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And yes, Jesus, in that same tradition, and the apostles in that tradition, and Peter and Paul of the apostles, and the early church fathers, Augustine and Aquinas, added to those four virtues three additional ones. Faith, hope, and love. And at the heart of this grand virtue tradition is one question, one pursuit. And that question is, what is the truly good life, the happy life? What is it? Now, it should not surprise you that the New Testament writers deeply reflect this virtue tradition. And they point us to the good and happy life in Jesus. And they tell us that living lives of virtue matters to God and matters to our neighbors. Laying aside vice and growing in virtue are essential components of apprenticeship with Jesus and spiritual formation into Christ-likeness. We are all being spiritually formed each and every day. That's not the issue. The issue is whether our spiritual formation is moving us closer to virtue or closer to vice. Last week, Pastor Nathan framed for us what vices are and why they're so deadly to us, to our families, our community, and our society. And Nathan highlighted for us that we either run after virtue or we are trampled by vice. The text that has launched our series is found in 2 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle Peter utilizes the virtue tradition as he encourages all of us to greater Christ-likeness of life. Peter reminds us that virtue requires both grace and hard work. That while grace is fundamentally opposed to any meritorious earning, it is not opposed to disciplined effort. And Peter begins with this virtuous language, he moves from faith to the ultimate crescendo of virtue to love in his text. Why? Because at the very heart of virtue is love, properly ordered love. And at the very heart of vice is improperly ordered love. Throughout the series, we will hear Jesus teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, this foundational truth. To live rightly, we must love rightly. So this morning we're going to dive headfirst in. It is our first vice, the crushing vice of envy. So I think before this message, let's pause for prayer. How's that? 
Heavenly Father, the words of Psalm 139, prepare our hearts to hear your word. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our ways and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us into the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we explore the vice of envy this morning, if you are taking notes mentally or on a piece of paper, our conversation flows around three vital questions. The first question we are going to explore is, what does envy look like? Secondly, we are going to explore, why is envy so deadly? And third, we will examine what are we going to do about it? How do we deal with it? So what does envy look like? Why is it so deadly? And how do we deal with it? You ready to dive in? Here we go. What does envy look like? Our text this morning gives us a compelling answer. So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 37. Now, before we engage the text, we need to have some definitional clarity. See, we often use in our cultural context English words like envy, jealousy, covetousness. We use them often interchangeably. And while these words are close members, close ugly members of the same linguistic family, they do have distinct differences. Jealousy is more focused on wanting something another person has. Now, envy can have part of that, but where envy goes is to want the other person not to have it. One of the fine Greek scholars of the last century, I think, defines this really, really well from a Greco-Roman history. And uh, Dr. Vine describes it this way. I think we have this on the slide here. It's a brilliant definition. It gives us de definitional clarity. The distinction lies in this, that envy desires to deprive another what he or she has. Jealousy desires to have the same or same sort of thing for itself. The point is, is that the envious heart rejoices in the loss or ruin of others. No wonder, through centuries of human thought, envy as a vice has been described as the evil eye, and evil indeed. Because when we peel back this evil eye and look at the layers, we see a very dark black hole of the human heart. And at the core of envy, we find the black hole of comparison, comparison. What fuels envy in our hearts is how we stack up against others. And here in the Genesis storyline, we are introduced to that very reality in a very, very 4,000-year-old kind of family. As we enter the text, the spotlight falls on Jacob and Joseph. Joseph is 17 years. Oh, maybe he's just graduating from high school. And beginning in verse 3, we read these words. Now, Israel, or Jacob, that's another name for him, loved Joseph. Now, in the Hebrew text, there are many kinds of words for love. Here is a tender, affectionate love. 
It's a ooey-gooey, ushy-gushy love. Got it? Hold on to that. So Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him, same ushy-gushy love, more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So here in the opening verses of chapter 37, Jacob's unwise favoritism toward his young son is on full display. Right, parents and grandparents? And if you're here this morning and you have doubts, you know, about the Bible and historicity and veracity of the Old Testament or the text, this story should give you a bit more confidence in the Bible and its truth. Why is that? Because when you compare other literature of antiquity, the heroes are unblemished most of the time. But what about Jacob and Joseph? No spin here. Just raw reality. Jacob's foolishness foolishness helps to stoke the embers of envy that are going to fan the flames of murderous hatred and grave injustice among the siblings. And I grew up in a large family. I'm telling you that happens. Now, the Genesis writer, notice, highlights this luxurious robe given to Joseph. Now, I have a sense that the brothers may have wanted a new robe like that. But it's what the robe signified that put him over the edge. They knew, comparatively, they were loved less in their father's eyes. They didn't and couldn't measure up to Joseph. And let's face it, Joseph is 70 years of age. I'll give him a little bit of a break here. He's not very wise either. I'm sure his brothers felt they were very well justified in viewing their little brother in my cultural context as the kind of arrogant, punk, prima donna kid. Basking in his robe of favoritism and spouting his grand visions and dreams. Envy often grows, doesn't it, under the convincing rationalizations and self-justifying reasons in our minds and hearts. Envy, like other vices, has a way of self-justifying itself. Envy often feels right to us. In fact, it's used by many to accomplish many things, like class envy, political things. It's a vice that's often quite convenient, actually. And envy convinces us that the problem is with them, not us. See, it's easy for us in reading this text, come on, it isn't easy, to kind of self-righteously pile on Joseph's brothers, especially if you read the whole story. You may be thinking, goodness, why did they just blow this kid off? You know, just heck with you and go about their way. Smoldering embers, that's what they are of envy, quickly can combust into a raging flame. And if we are honest, 
We are much more like Joseph's brothers than we care to admit. Are we not? How we perceive ourselves stacking up against others, come on, matters a great deal to us, doesn't it? We all too often measure our self-worth in terms of comparison with others. We compare how we look with others, how we dress, what we drive, where we live, who we know. We compare our children and we compare our grandchildren. We compare our marriages, our spouses, how we get to spend our time. We compare ourselves with other students at school, our grades, our class rank, our test scores. We compare ourselves with colleagues at work, our quarterly sales figures, our company's rank in the market, our scholarly work in the most prestigious journal. And we compare the rate of our return on our investment. Pastors really struggle here too. Most of you don't experience this, but take it by faith. Pastors, conferences, It's quite perilous to the heart often. There are subtle and less subtle comparisons that are all too common, explicit and implicit. Did you know that around the country, leadership network and other organizations rank churches nationally? I mean, if you get to the thousand level, people begin to know about you, the top thousand. And you get to 400 top 400 churches. People know about you. And if you can get to the top 100, everybody knows about you. I won't tell you where we are. <laughs> it killed the first service, but I'm not going to say. <clears throat> Pastors are very capable of not only comparing themselves with others, but rejoicing at the downfall of others. I was painfully reminded of that this week. It's not uncommon for me to receive phone calls from people around the country, board members of other churches and leadership, because they know that Christ Community is a teaching hospital developing leaders for the world. I'd met this board member before of another, another very prominent church in another city. And after we chatted a little bit, because we've known each other around different national things, he told me about their senior pastor's resignation. Church has been a very prominent church. And he was just saying how things have gone downhill in the last four years. The church has declined from an average Sunday attendance of 3,000 to less than 1,000. And I 
knew who the senior pastor who led that was, and I'd met him on some occasions, and transparently, I wasn't very impressed with him. In spite of his ministry success. And I have to say, as the board member told me about his resignation for just a few fleeting moments, I found myself feeling kind of good about it. Like, how bad is that? I don't get up and leave yet. <laughs> but I don't think I'm alone in that. What do you think and how do you feel when you hear reports of a precipitous decline of a business competitor? After all, they had it coming. Those bozos. Or how about when a classmate, usually who's an A student, gets a lower grade? Or when a former boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse who has broken your heart, you find out their heart has been badly broken in another relationship. What are your first thoughts and feelings? Is their pain your gain? See, the vice of envy is hideously ugly because we rejoice in the loss of others, the pain of others, the demise of others, or the ruin of others instead of having empathy for them, which leads to our second question, back to our story. Why is envy so deadly? Beginning in verse 5, if you're following along, Joseph tells his brothers about a dream he has. And everybody knows what he's saying. He's going to rise above them in influence and power. And in verse 4, you'll notice verse 4, 5, and 8, you have a progression of intensity of hatred. Verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. And verse 8, they hated him even more. And then he pops his second dream on him that is not only them bowing down, it's the sun itself bowing down. This puts him over the edge. It's the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back. Verse 11, the Genesis writer now comes clean, explicitly, of what's going on. It's been implicit. Now it's explicit. The English word in verse 11 is translated jealousy. But the Hebrew word conveys, it's really hard to know how to translate it, but it, it does convey the sense of getting really emotionally hot. It's used of getting heated. The idea is rage, the brush fire of rage, is now burning out of control in the hearts of the brothers. And if you've been seeing a brush fire combust, there's no way to stop it. It moves from resentment to seething anger to murderous hatred. And you'll notice in the story how the brothers lie in wait for the right moment. And the right moment comes. Joseph is sent by his father Jacob to check on the flocks at Dothan. And you'll notice verse 18, what the text says. They, his brothers, saw him from afar. He came near to them. As he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They had the plan all laid out. And you know, and you the rest of the story. Instead of being killed, immediately he's thrown in a pit. He's roughed up. And then they have the opportunity to make some money off him. 
So they sell them to slave traders who take them to, to uh, Egypt. See, we know this isn't the end of the story. But in the moment we have here in verse, chapter 37, the brothers are convinced it's, it's done. It's over. The brothers tell themselves they've gotten rid of Joseph out of their life forever. But envy never delivers what it promises. Never. So what's the big deal about envy? Why is it so deadly? Because envy makes us bitter when we perceive others have it better. And if given room to breathe, envy fuels and justifies not only bitterness, but hatred toward others. Hatred that leads to wounding words and unspeakable action. It's just a matter of time. Few movies have captured better, I think, the vice of envy than the movie that won 1984's best picture, Amadeus. If you've not seen this movie, I recommend it as a further reflection on this message. Amadeus is actually, the script is a fictional account, but it contains insightful truth about the human condition and the human heart. It is said in 18th century Vienna, the main characters are two very good composers, Amadeus Mozart and Antonio Saleri. And if you study history, you know that Mozart perhaps is one of the most brilliant humans that ever lived apart from Jesus. And Mozart's brilliant talent bursts on the scene and it shatters Soleri's quest for greatness. And envious Soleri is increasingly incensed and enraged at Mozart. And Soleri does everything he can to hasten Mozart's demise. Yet Mozart's music will outshine him forever. I mean, unless you're in music, you've probably heard of Mozart, everyone. You probably haven't heard about Antonio Soleri or much. In the film's opening scene, brilliantly done. Soleri tries to commit suicide. He is stricken with guilt for hastening Mozart's early death. And the rest of the film is framed around Soleri's very dark, ongoing, soul-wrenching confession to a priest. The movie Amadeus brilliantly portrays Envy's hell-bent downward spiral. It is a downward spiral that tears others down in order to build ourselves up. But the devastating irony is rather than, rather than it build us up, it destroys us. Envy never delivers what it promises. Envy promises relief, but it brings grief. Envy starts as a silent killer within us, but it cannot be hidden forever. It takes words and actions incarnated. At its core, envy is a virulent and destructive form of disordered love. Envy destroys neighborly love. Whether that neighbor resides in her own house as a spouse or a child or a brother or sister in our own cul-de-sacs, in our school classroom, or in the office next to us. The vice of envy tears others down while the virtue of love builds others up. If we don't deal with envy, it will deal with us. And it will unleash the most hellish collateral damage 
on others. Societies, economies, and institutions. What does envy look like? Why is it so deadly? And how do we deal with it? If we are going to deal with the vice of envy, as is true of other vices, we need to understand their pernicious, blinding nature. All vices blind us to their ubiquitous presence and pervasive influence in our lives and our relationships with others and God Himself. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, as we looked last week, Peter makes this very important observation. He says, for whoever lacks these virtues, is the literal idea, is so nearsighted that he is blind. On a recent trip uh, where I was speaking, uh, the organizers put me up in a nicer hotel than the Motel 6. And um, it was a really nice hotel. And I was grateful for that. It was kind of them. But I walk in the bathroom. I don't spend a lot of time in the bathroom. It's too depressing. Um, and there's this big mirror all lit up. But then on the side, there's this amazing makeup mirror. It's not something I look at a lot. I just want you to know. This makeup mirror magnifies things. And it shines this bright light. So I'm like, what is that? I turn it on. It's this bright light. I look in the mirror. That was a big mistake. Every blemish, every wrinkle, every gray hair, I couldn't escape it. It was shocking to me. <laughs> but see, an illuminated, magnified makeup mirror reveals raw reality. And once the human heart mine and yours, is brought into the bright light of truth, many imperfections cannot be hidden. See, vices are like that. We don't see them in our lives. We see them in other people's lives. We're good at that, especially close, those closest to us. But we don't see them in our life. But the truth of Holy Scriptures illuminates these vices through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God function like a magnifying makeup mirror, revealing to each of us the sinful depths of our human heart. What the prophet Jeremiah said is the most mysterious and deceitful reality in all of the universe, the human heart. Your heart and my heart. The vices and patterns of sin and disordered loves that lurk deeply there. Are we willing to allow God's word and the Holy Spirit's gaze to search deeply into our hearts and reveal to us what is really there? Are we willing to put ourselves in a humble posture before a holy, righteous God and realize that pride, as C.S. Lewis said, is the ultimate vice, the roots from which all putrid fruit emerge. The psalmist puts himself in a humble posture before God in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways, 
my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May I encourage you this morning that maybe the main takeaway of this message is to memorize these two verses in Psalm 139. And see them on a daily basis as you look in the mirror, as your spiritual makeup mirror, that you stand before God each day. Memorize them. And each time you look at them and in the mirror, practice, practice praying them back to God. The words of Psalm 139 as a backdrop. Let me suggest the spiritual discipline of celebration as the most powerful antidote to envy. The spiritual practice of celebration has three basic parts, and you might want to write these down or remember. The first is to remember, the second is to refocus, and the third is to rejoice. To remember, refocus, and rejoice. Remember, refocus, and rejoice. First, the spiritual discipline of celebration first remembers you are greatly loved. In her insightful book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung says this, The only escape from this vice, she's speaking of envy here, is to find a completely different foundation for our self-worth. What is Rebecca DeYoung saying? She is looking at the heart of the gospel that says we are more sinful than we can ever fathom, we are more loved than we can ever imagine, and we need to remember in celebration the good news of the gospel. That is, our self-worth, your self-worth is immeasurable because you are loved by God with an everlasting love. That in Christ, nothing we have ever done or will do can separate us from that love. That God the Father gave up for you what was most precious to Him, His very own Son, who shed His innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine in the world. That's how much God loves you. When we in repentance and faith trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are completely secure in the greatest love imaginable. In Christ, we are unconditionally loved. In Christ, we are fully known and we are fully pleasing to Him in Christ. And if you have not yet embraced the good news of the gospel, will you do that this morning? It is only the power of the gospel that can transform an envious heart into a loving heart. Practicing the spiritual discipline of celebration, we remember daily, yes, daily, we are loved. We are Christ's beloved. We remember as Christ's beloved, we have what? Nothing to fear, nothing to hide, and nothing to prove. Remembering God's awesome love for us. Then the enticement to compare ourselves with others loses its gravitational tug. Instead of comparison, we are free to celebrate Others' achievements, their gifts, their successes, their accomplishments, their wealth. Because we know we are securely loved by God. Daily, daily practice the spiritual discipline of celebration. That means first remember you are greatly loved in Christ. But secondly, refocus on following Jesus. Remember and refocus. Getting our eyes back on following Jesus helps us get our eyes off comparing ourselves with others. It's interesting, a close examination of the Gospel of John, there are several indications of this, that John and Peter, you know, pretty heavyweight people in the Bible, they had an issue with this comparison deal. And you see it through the Gospel, including John getting to the tomb first. It's hilarious. But what is not hilarious 
is how the Gospel of John ends. In John 21, the resurrected Jesus meets his disciples in Galilee. He makes breakfast for them. At breakfast, Jesus turns his attention to Peter, and you can look at this text, and the focus is on having your loves ordered rightly. Jesus is speaking in the virtue tradition. He talks to Peter about what he loves, not just what he believes. And he's the, Jesus is not even hardly done with his words, it seems like, in John. And all of a sudden, Peter goes, what about this guy? What about him, Lord? Jesus' response is classic. Jesus is basically, Peter, get your eyes off him and get him back on me. He says, you follow me. You follow me. When I confront the depths of sin in my own heart, they're often covered because of socialization and pastoral professionalism. I have to hear God's word regular to me. You follow me. What about, what about, you follow me. Practicing the spiritual discipline of celebration takes our eyes off others. It puts them back on Jesus and his will for our life. In Jesus' yoke of apprenticeship, our energies are directed to cultivate intimacy with him. It is where we learn to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. And as we follow Jesus, we become like him over time, who is gentle and humble of heart. And as we are yoked to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, our constant guide and helper and sustainer, produces in us the virtuous fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the vices... The deeds of the flesh, like envy, are increasingly diminished in our lives. Confront in your heart envy by practicing the spiritual discipline of celebration. Three parts to it. Remember first. Remember God's great love for you in Christ. Secondly, follow Jesus. But thirdly, notice, rejoice in God's goodness. The Apostle Paul also shares this brilliant virtue tradition It's in his writings. In his letter to the Philippians, probably the most joyful letter, he will articulate the spiritual discipline of celebration. For example, in chapter 4, verse 4, he will say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul's grammatical construction in this text conveys that it is a regular practice we do day after day. It is the discipline of celebration immersed in the context in verses 8 through 10 of virtue. Do not miss it. At the heart of the spiritual disciplines of celebration is practicing gratitude. Gratitude releases envy's tenacious grip on us because a heart filled with gratitude has little room for envy. Practice being grateful for who you are, how God has uniquely made you. Practice gratitude for what you have rather than what you don't have. Instead of resenting others, practice kindness toward others. Look for ways to celebrate their gifts, accomplishments, and successes. Encourage and applaud others. One of the ways I practice this in my life is when I drive at other churches or I find other pastors on the stage that are better known. I practice praying for them, that Christ would be exalted, that God would bless them, because prayer gives us God's perspective. I also transparently pause just about every time to thank God 
for the privilege of being a part of such an amazing church called Christ Community. Practice, practice, practice. Practice the discipline of celebration in your life. Remember, you are greatly loved in Christ. Refocus on following Jesus and rejoice in God's goodness. Why? Because when a heart is filled with gratitude, there's little room for envy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. How it penetrates the deepest thoughts of our hearts. May we realize and recognize in the goodness of the gospel that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, yet we are more loved than we can ever imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.